pray. Father, we come to the text this morning in Luke 16, and we've already observed the parable of the prodigal son in 15 and the clever steward earlier in 16. And the bottom line is that all that we have belongs to you, and we are to be single-focused in our living this life so that you will be exalted. Guide us as we go to the text. Thank you for this time of the year where we can carve a few moments and just reflect on your goodness to us, for indeed you are a gracious and merciful God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn to Luke 16. I thought for a moment we weren't going to have power. That's the last time I praise our uh, tech crew. <laughs> just joking. Luke 16 is where we are. And uh, while we're making some confessions here, I was mistaken. December the 5th is the business meeting, not next week. Next week we're going to, I realize Thanksgiving is this week, but it's Thanksgiving weekend is next Sunday. And Pastor Michael will be sharing. We have some very unique and fun and very, I think, powerful things that are going to happen in next Sunday service. So you don't want to miss it if you're here uh, or if you're watching online you'll want to take note. But we're in Luke 16, and this is continuing this discussion. If you've just joined us, we're moving through the Gospel of Luke. And in this section, chapter 12 through chapter 19, it's called the travel log. It's moving us, in fact, Luke is moving us geographically through the Gospel, and we're headed towards Jerusalem. And in this journey, it's intriguing, 45% of the material from Luke 11 to all the way to Luke 19 deals with money. (laughs) Interesting. Why? Because in this journey to Jerusalem, Jesus is trying to, to highlight, Luke is through the gospel as well, demonstrating what does it mean to follow Jesus? What is discipleship? And one of the major hurdles in discipleship is the pocketbook, isn't it? And so that's why we reach this story on what to do with our wealth. And it says in verse 19 of chapter 16, there was a rich man, or literally it says there was a certain man who was wealthy. It echoes the previous parable in 16.1 because that's also how it started. There was a certain man. So the connection is there. And by the way, the prodigal son also starts, and there was a certain man. So it's all being drawn together And it's orbiting, by the way, around verse 14, which says the Pharisees who loved money. (laughs) So in 19, it says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. I mean, this guy was dressed to the help. Armani, unit, whatever, I don't know. And who fasted or feasted, excuse me, sumptuously every day. But at his gate, a man named Lazarus, whose body was covered with sores, who longed to eat even the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And the dogs came and licked his sores. Our story starts similar to the prodigal son. You have two major characters. In this story, we have two major characters. We have a rich man, and we have a guy named Lazarus, which we'll get to in a minute. But let's just look at the description of the rich man. It's intriguing as we unpack the text. First, we're told he has very fine clothes. In fact, we're told he's wearing purple, which is extremely significant. 
It indicated in the first century, purple clothing, the dye was from snails primarily, and, and that was extremely costly. And so it was reserved for the, the upper echelon, royalty, etc. So we're already, we know this isn't somebody who just has a little bit of money, he's got a lot of money. And he's wearing fine linen, which in that age was considered the most luxurious fabric and most likely reserved for his undergarments. So his fruit of the loom was out of linen, right? And then he had this purple coat. So I mean, whoo, this guy, he's got it together. Not only that, we're told he eats fine drink and uh, drinks fine drink and, and eats, the text tells sumptuously, and notice the text says it's daily. This isn't one big event once a week or once a month. No, 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 it's every day he has a party. And we're told, indirectly, we know his house has to be quite a hacienda because the text tells us, look at verse 20, the poor man named Lazarus is laying at, notice the gate, it's not the city gate, and, and the term is reserved for gate here, usually we think of city gate or the temple gate, and that's where you would think a, a beggar might be. What's the pronoun in front of it, which is key? You wanna be a good Bible student, look at the text. What's it say? His gate. In other words, this man is so loaded that he has his own gate into his place, the rich man. Uh, if I were to take you to Jerusalem and we go about two stories underground, we could visit the Herodian Villa. It's 12,000 square foot home from the first century. That's huge. It's, and you can see the mosaic tiles still and the frescoes. It's a gorgeous home in its day. And that gives you the idea of the opulence that this gentleman has that he should have his own ornate and expensive gate into his home. But notice the poor man. What does the text tell us about him? First of all, we know his name. And this is the only individual named in, in all of Jesus' stories in the Gospels. We, we, we have his name here. I kind of wonder if that's because everyone knows who Lazarus is. <laughs> He's that disgusting beggar that is an inconvenience as I enter into my home. I don't know, I'm reading in between the lines, but we do know this, Lazarus, the term means God helps, or God is my helper. Interesting, isn't it? What a pathetic name. <laughs> Here you are, sick, and, 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 and we're gonna see in a minute, dogs are attending to you, and you, you got a name that says, my God helps? What a joke. Because remember the mindset in the first century among Jews, that is if, if you're righteous, God blesses. You have money, you have resources. If you're in poverty, it must mean God has cursed you. And then your name means my God helps. How funny, how ironic. Now that we're told, notice the text says here, he lays, uh, lays a poor man named Lazarus. The term means to be thrown down. Most likely he's crippled and he's been placed here. Perhaps this is why he has sores, which that's the other thing we see, right? His, his body is covered with sores, not in a few areas. Later Jewish writings state there are three situations that result in no life. You, you don't want to be found in this condition. One who depends on food from another's table, one ruled by his wife, <laughs> I'm grateful for my wife, all right? And the third is one whose body is full of sores. 
This guy is a sad case. He's begging. He's crippled. We also see that he's alone. He's isolated. He's not in there with the party. And if you've been in the hospital at any extent and you lay there in that bed and there's no one around, your mind does begin to play tricks, doesn't it? Woe is me, no one cares. Uh, you kind of wonder what's run through Lazarus' mind as he lays here and watches all these people go by. And I think they're intentionally avoiding him because all of these parties going on, no one stops to give him food or money. Did you notice that? He's longing for just a crumb. So you're going, why didn't they just give him a, a shekel? Or, or what about the leftovers? As they left the party, couldn't they just given him some of the leftovers? No, 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 they needed that for the next day. I don't know. Or, or leftovers from the mill? A servant could have brought out some food to this poor chap. No, we don't see any of this. In fact, we're told he's extremely hungry. He would do, dive in the dumpster, but he can't get to the dumpster. Kind of an idea. And not only that, we're left with this last clause, which is very alarming. Notice what the text says. It says that the dogs came and licked his sores. Dogs in the first century were not seen as house pets. <laughs> in fact, the term that is used here of dog is a wild animal. This isn't your sweet labradoodle that's cuddling up to the beggar. This is disgusting creatures. They were unclean among the Jews. And, and yes, some have said that a dog licking a wound has some, I don't know, antibacterial properties, but the danger of a dog licking your wound far outweighs the benefits. <laughs> There's the bacterial infections that come from the saliva. The tongue that's rough can initiate, it actually irritate the wound and reopen a wound. I wouldn't advise it, right? It's a sad state. He can't even shoo the dogs away. I love what Warren Worsby said in his commentary. The only attention this man receives is from a pack of disgusting dogs. That's it. So here is this beggar laying. The rich man is, you know, living it up. In fact, you look at the contrast. If you compare the two, one is extremely fluent. The other is extremely destitute. One is clothed in purple. The other is clothed in sores. One is attended by servants, the other is attended by dogs. Living in excess, living in want. Socially accepted, socially detested. The sad part is there shouldn't have been a Lazarus in a Jewish culture because any Jew should have understood the Old Testament and the stipulations that they were to provide for those in poverty and to care for them. He shouldn't have been in that state. Uh, they should have been caring for him. Instead, remember time and time again throughout the Old Testament, the religious leaders, as well as those in the society, were con con condemned for exploiting the widow and the poor. And that's what we see here in this situation. Well, let's continue. Isn't this exciting? I love this story. Look at verse 22. It says, now the poor man died. It's just stated matter-of-factly. There's, there's no glorious funeral. I mean, put him with the poor people that croak, and, you know, there's, there's no ceremony. I, I doubt anyone showed up for his, uh, his uh, funeral. 
and it says he was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried. He had a glorious ceremony. Wish you could have been there. It was really nice. And he's in hell. Uh, uh, this whole story, what? He's in hell. He was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. Now let's look at this. Let's unpack this text because it's, it's key here. You, you have Lazarus who, who receives, again, the text is, and he died. It's it stated so matter of fact, there's no burial. There's nothing. Uh, he, he just croaks. I don't know if it was from malnutrition from the sores that became infected. I don't know. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But what does it tell us? He receives an angelic escort into paradise. Think about the Old Testament. Angelic escorts were for people like Enoch and Elijah. I mean, and Moses is mentioned in Jude. I mean, th this is big stuff. My God is my helper is the name of Lazarus. He understood that. Even in the midst of difficulties of life, I look to the Lord. The rich man is given a glorious and dignified burial. In fact, if you go to the Israel Museum, they have what's called ossuaries. These are bone boxes. Uh, Jews in the first century had a two-stage burial. You placed the body in a tomb, and a year later you came and you gathered the bones and put it in a box, and then you placed it with the fathers so that they're with the fathers and the fathers' fathers. They're gathered together. And if you look at these bone boxes, some of them are so ornate. You can see Caiaphas, the high priest. It's on display. It's gorgeous. It has all this ornate carvings. And then some are, are rather crude. But the extremely poor, there was no ossuary because there was no family to come back and gather. There was no tomb available. Here, we, we see this luxurious place being given. And we're told... Both of them wind up in the place of the dead. Now let's unpack this a little bit because it's, it's not described in detail, Sheol or Hades, the, 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 the place that the dead go, but it is referred to often in the Old Testament. Daniel states in Daniel 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Job says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last day he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints, knowing this. And so we see this, this place of the dead. Now, the first place that's mentioned is Abraham's bosom, paradise. Now, some scholars call this entire realm, paradise and Hades, uh, Abraham's bosom. But the upper part is certainly paradise. It's where Abraham dwells. It's where they're in the presence of God. It was reserved for those that have placed their faith in God in the Old Testament up to the time of Christ. According to Acts 1, when Jesus ascends into heaven, not paradise, but into heaven. He takes all those from paradise up to heaven with him. As for a believer today, we don't go, if we should die, we don't go to uh, paradise. If you know Christ is your Savior, you're in the presence of the Lord. You're in heaven. And that's 2 Corinthians 5. For the Christian, death means to be present with the Lord. 
Scripture and New Testament doesn't seem to be that there's any indication of communication between heaven and Hades. Hades is the place of torment. For those who've not placed their faith in, the, in God in the Old Testament, this is where they would go. For someone who dies today who doesn't know the Lord, they don't go to hell. They go to Hades. They go to this place of torment that waits the day when all in this realm will appear before the Lord at the great white throne judgment and cast into hell. You say, where do you get that off of it? Well, Revelation 20. If you want to turn there, I will read the text to you. But Revelation 20 states, I saw a great white throne. This is the great white throne judgment. This is reserved for unbelievers, not believers, unbelievers. And the one who sat on it, which is Christ, the earth and the heaven fled from his presence. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. The book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, as recorded in the books. We're not judged as believers according to our works because we're seen in Christ's righteousness. We will be appear before the Lord and be rewarded for our good deeds, but things that we do as a believer that are bad, that will hinder the blessings that come. But for the unsaved who don't know Christ, they're here. And Revelation says the dead were judged according to their works or recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead. Now watch this. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. That's where this rich man is at. They are now going to be taken to the great white throne, appear before the judgment, and notice what the text says, and when they and all will be judged according to what they will be that they have done. Verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which we often refer to as hell. Everyone's name who was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, which means all of them. So you don't want to wish someone to appear before the great white throne because that means they're going to be judged according to their deeds and sent to hell. Those that are in Hades, again, will appear before that great white throne and then taken into hell. So again, all believers who appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that's not the great white throne. This will happen when you die and you are in the presence of the Lord and again, according to 1 Corinthians 4, each believer will receive praise from the Lord at this point. However, as we see with the unbeliever, there are no second chances. We're going to see here in a minute, the rich man doesn't beg, Abraham, please give me a second chance. He never does. It's silent. Hebrews 9 is clear, as just it is appointed for mortals to die once, and after that, the judgment. Condemnation stems only from the one's not only from one's rejection of Christ, but also because of one's sin. And so we're gonna see that as we move through here. Keep note of this as we look at this text. The rich man, we're gonna see, recognizes his judgment. Again, he doesn't ask for a second chance. He doesn't debate his fate. Or does he seek for us or for a way for him to get into paradise? Notice the text. Let's look at this. And so he, verses 24, the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in anguish in this fire. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime, by the way, it tells us that he is Jewish. He belongs 
ethnically to Abraham, but he cannot. And he can even claim him as father in that regard, but not spiritually. And Abraham said, child, remember that in the things that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus likewise had his things, and now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. It's not because the man was wealthy that he's being judged, or because Lazarus was poor, he was blessed. It's what they did with what God had given them, right? It's the love of money. And in his greed, the rich man, he neglected this poor beggar that sat outside his gate. And then Abraham goes on to say, because there's, there's a great chasm has been fixed between us, between paradise and this lower rung, which is Hades. And because of that, it says, so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. And so the rich man said, then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Watch this to warn them so that they don't come into this place of torment. Hades or hell is not one big party. I've shared with people of Christ, well, you know, all my friends are unsaved, we'll just have a big party in the, in the by and by. No, you won't. You're gonna be very isolated. You're gonna be tormented. When I am sick, I don't care to be around a lot of people. <laughs> Right, and, and, and this rich man is gonna be tormented and as well as anyone else who does not accept Christ as their savior. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They must respond to them. The rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes, then they will repent. There's the key. And he replied to them, if they do not respond to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now let's look at this because this is so rich. I love this passage. In your notes, you have three things that the rich man appeals for. First of all, he asks for water. He mentions the term torment is referred to four times in this brief section. It's the term used uh, the, the evil spirits. Remember in Mark when they were gonna be cast out, they feared the torment, the doom that, that is there. And it's ironic that he's quenching for thirst because in Psalm 42, the unquenchable thirst is the desire for God's presence. The rich man has been cut off from the, the forefathers. <laughs> he's been relegated to this. He doesn't get to reside with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't re get to reside with God Almighty. And notice, he's, he's looking for a temporary relief. He's not looking for, a, he doesn't ask for a gallon of water. He asks for just a drip to quench it. You, Mr. Rich Man, wouldn't even give Lazarus the time of day. And now you are wanting to give orders? <laughs> you want Lazarus to do this for you? You, you catch this. Th there's no apology on the part of Lazarus. There's no self-examination. There's no soul-searching soliloquy. There's this sense of entitlement. Because of my social status, Lazarus needs to come do this for me. Wow. It's kind of like confronting a man who's cheated on his wife, and he says, well, you know, my wife was, is really nice, and you know, I'm thankful for her, and, you know, I'm sorry. That th There's no repentance. You louse, wake up. <laughs> I mean, look what you've done. 
to the rich man. Look what you've done to Lazarus. Do you not see this? No. He's still missing it. He's expecting these benefits because of who he is. John Dunn stated, death is the great leveler. The rich man died in spite of his wealth. And we're told in the text, notice it says that he is, that fire is consuming him. Fire throughout the Old and New Testament is associated with God's judgment. Deuteronomy 32, for a fire has been kindled by my wrath, God says, one that burns to the realm of death below. And Jesus, it's red letters, refers to hell as the unquenchable fire. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says, hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Let me read that again. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. That's what Jesus stated in Matthew 25, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. When you start talking about hell, Christians get a little uncomfortable. It's one of those doctrines that's quickly dismissed among even evangelicals, isn't it? It's a difficult topic. We'd like to minimize the magnitude of what it entails. That's why you have one theological camp called a nihilist who argue that when you die, if you're unsaved, there's maybe a temporary judgment, but then it's quickly, you're extinguished and you no longer exist. Problem there is eternal is eternal. <laughs> forever is forever. In Old and New Testament, it is very clear. There are those who say, no, eternal judgment, that is so unfair. It, it is certainly not keeping with a loving God. Why would he have a hell? That's just, that's just awful. Well, let me give you a, the, a few things to hang on your beak this morning if you're taking notes. First of all, God does not send people to hell. <laughs> they send themselves to hell when they refuse to repent. Second Peter 3, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, right? And think about it. How many opportunities did this rich man have? He went to the temple. He heard how he was to treat his brothers. He understood, I mean, every Thanksgiving, you know, God is good, look what he's given us. I mean, you go through the list. And he walked by Lazarus how many times? And what does the name mean? My God is my help. He didn't need help, so he thought. And so God does not send people to hell. Secondly, and I love Grudem his, in his discussion on his systematic theology, he says, such an argument wrongly assumes that we know the extent of the evils done when sinners rebel against God. John Walvoord, former president of Dallas Seminary, said if the slightest sin is infinite in its significance, then it also demands infinite punishment as a divine judgment. In Revelation 22:11, it makes a very interesting statement about those in hell. Let the evil doer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. What is it saying? It's suggesting that those in hell will keep on sinning. 
Look at the rich man. He still got a sense of entitlement. <laughs> yeah, have Lazarus come do this. Have Lazarus come over here and do this. Who are you? Right? Who are you, Mr. Rich Man? Because you don't have anything now. Another question for those who argue, well, you know, it's, there's a little judgment and then they're annihilated. Does the short term of punishment argued by such views actually pay for all of the unbeliever's sin and satisfy God's justice? And if so, why isn't this person who has sin, who has been justified of his sin, why isn't he allowed into heaven? It's a question for the annihilist or those who want to deny hell. God's love is a holy love, not a shallow sentiment, and sin is rebellion against a holy and loving God. Without judgment, the character of God is compromised. His justice would not be satisfied, and his glory would be tarnished. Think about the book of Revelation. Remember the martyrs? At the end of the death of the harlot of Babylon, they rejoice because of her demise and her judgment. Were they wrong in praising God? No. Because God was keeping his character, staying true to who he is. Ultimately, who has known the mind of the Lord? I mean, there is an aspect here that goes far beyond our ability to reason, but there is a hell. And it should motivate us to share the gospel, to pray for the unsaved and show compassion on those who need to be snatched from an eternal judgment. You notice in verses 25 and 26, Abraham says to the rich man, I cannot fulfill your request. Why? Number one, in the character of the rich man. <laughs> He's used to, to getting his way. Not now. And then secondly, the character of the eternal state. So no, there's a chasm. It's already determined. You, you can't move from one to the next. And if the righteousness is a quote from one commentator, if righteousness and unrighteousness not, do not mix in the afterlife, then the possibility of being saved after death is excluded. There is no other possibility. Die, judgment, that's it. Well, he appeals for the drip of water. He also appeals for Lazarus to be sent to his brothers. You catch this in verse 27? Well then, fine, send Lazarus. You notice we compared Lazarus and the rich man earlier in the text. Take a, take a look again and contrast them. It's, it's amazing. Now it's Lazarus who is extremely affluent in the presence of Abraham. It's the rich man who's extremely destitute. Lazarus, he, he's the one who is at a bountiful feast and it's the rich man who longs for just a drop of water. It's Lazarus who is socially accepted in the presence of the patriarchs. And where is the rich man? Socially bankrupt and detested. What he wishes to bequeath to his brothers, it's impossible. There's nothing left of the inheritance. He didn't take it with him. There's nothing at his disposal beyond the grave. And the brothers, apparently they knew Lazarus as well. They've been to the parties. 
Uh, and, and the rich man assumes they know him because if you send Lazarus, they'll know who he is and they'll repent. Let him have a, a visit from the dead, this dear sweet Lazarus. And the text saying, no, 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 no. And so the final appeal is that message from the dead. One scholar writes, wonders may impress a worldly mind for the moment, but only a will freely submitting itself to moral control can avail to change the heart. Psalm 78, there are many great works that were performed in the Exodus, but the text goes on to say, and with that came unbelief. Ironically, they do have another Lazarus in the Gospels. Remember him? the brother of Mary and Martha, he did rise from the dead, and what did they want to do? Kill him. So you expect this Lazarus to, to, to bring repentance to your brothers? I don't think so. I love the response. Look what it says. In fact, he doesn't mention Lazarus, the other Lazarus, but he says in verse 30, if they don't respond to Moses and the prophets, don't miss this. What is it saying here? First of all, it assumes you can know the scriptures. Why? Because then you're gonna be held accountable for all eternity. So either we have a very sadistic God or you really can know the things of scripture. It also assumes they're sufficient. Because if you had known what the scripture stated, you would have repented. So obviously this can lead us to repentance. One of our very own, Keith Yoder, Keith uh, has written an article in New Testament Studies, uh, an article he wrote on this very parable. He draws connections with Job, Abraham, and his servant Eleazar, which was, it's brilliant. I love what he did with it. But Keith said, the rich man should have remembered Job's exemplary treatment of the poor and Abraham's hospitality to strangers. These iconic figures served as a reminder throughout Scripture of how we are to live this earthly life, dependent on the Lord, understanding my God is my help. But that was missed. And, and Abraham says they have the Scriptures that should suffice. And you notice it's to lead them to repent, verse 30, so they will repent. The only sign people need is the gospel to be uh, preached to them and that call to repent. God is not impressed with a great pocketbook. Even if, even if the rich man had been so generous to Lazarus, unless there's a change of the heart, you can forget it. The Lord is looking for a change of conviction and this is why the gospel is so important. The gospel cannot share or be eclipsed by another message. Careful, it's not about social justice. It's about what Christ accomplished on the cross. It cannot be diluted by minimizing sin and the need to repent. Careful. Or simply dismissed as something that's not that significant. Hmm. All of eternity is at stake. Ask the rich man. Ask Lazarus. It leads us with three things to tease out of the text. There in your notes. Letter A. The Lord did not bless us with wealth so we could live a self-indulgent lifestyle with little care and compassion for those in need. 
Again, the rich man was not condemned because he was wealthy, nor was Lazarus saved because he had sought or had a rough earthly life and deserved it. The rich man trusted in his riches. The poor man Lazarus trusted in the Lord, and there's the difference. C.S. Lewis states the safest road to hell is the gradual one. It's the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without millstones, without signposts. It's dangerous, the lure of the things of this world, isn't it? Mark 8, for what does it profit of man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? This rich man had everything this earth could afford him. Power, prestige, wealth, friends, so-called friends. I mean, he had it all together. Apparently had a great family, five brothers. I mean, this is great. What kind of values does the Lord require of us? Do we live self-indulgent lives or do we serve the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? It's not a coincidence that this parable comes on the heels of the prodigal son. It's a warning against the self-serving and self-satisfied life that so easily results from such privilege. This week we celebrate Thanksgiving. And if you're like us, you go around the table and thank the Lord for what he's done in your life. And that's a great exercise. Encourage you to do it. And as you enjoy that turkey along with the 46 million other turkeys that are eaten by Americans on Thanksgiving, literally, and you give thanks to the Lord for what he's given, spend some time reflecting on what you have done for others because of God's blessing this past year. I have people who say, oh my goodness, my giving hasn't been kept. You know, I got to do that before the end of the year with IRS. And I want to go, why haven't you been keeping up on that? But that's a whole other question. I won't meddle. But as we sit here at Thanksgiving and we've got a few weeks left at the end of the year, is it, as you sit around the Thanksgiving table, thank you for my largest savings account I've ever had. I'm so grateful for my second Rolls Royce I just bought. It's just beautiful. Or... This year I had the opportunity to give to a family in need. Or we increased our giving to missions this year. You fill in the blank. The second thing I think that is screaming from the text is the choices made in this life last for all eternity. Charles Spurgeon, the great English minister stated it well, time is short, eternity, it's long. It is only reasonable that this short life be lived in the light of eternity. To those who believe in the doctrine of original sin, as mysterious and as difficult it is to understand and accept, the doctrine of God's good pleasure and grace is certainly sweet music. That God withholds his wrath from any person is good news. That God has graciously blessed believers in spite of their sin and rebellion should cause them to erupt into a chorus of praise for God's amazing grace. And the fact that apart from God's grace, all humans face an eternal destiny in hell should motivate believers to devote themselves fervently to sharing the gospel. It's the only hope this world has. It's not in a vaccine. It's not a political party. It's not who's in charge. It's not what job you might get. The only hope our world has is Christ, the gospel. 
And that leads us to the third. No quantity of wonder-working or clever arguments are going to change the heart of one who is unwilling to repent and turn to God. Romans 2 is clear. It states, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hand and impotent, and, and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. That rich man, he, was, he had unbelievable 401k. <laughs> I mean, he had it all together. You want to see the stock portfolio? He's got it. I wonder if he realized, well, he does now, but he was storing up wrath as well. Because that's what the text tells us. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed, verse 6, for he will repay according to each one's deeds to those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. While for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. God has given men and women a short time here on earth, writes Jeremy Taylor the Puritan, and yet upon this short time, eternity depends. If Lazarus and the rich man were here today, they'd be telling us all that we read here. Nothing new. Today is the day for repentance. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus, this isn't a game. This isn't some concocted fable. The God of the universe sent his son to pay the price on a cross. Why? So your sin would be covered. So according to 2 Corinthians 5, when God looks at the one who has accepted this Jesus and has repented of sin, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, what God sees is his own son's righteousness. Wow. There's one for the Thanksgiving table, right? Look what God's done for us. If you haven't done that, you're heading down the same path as the rich man. And for the believer who's toying with sin and kicking it around, whether that's from your computer that you're looking at things you shouldn't be doing or fudging the numbers at work, playing with the time, cheating your employer, if anything, the doctrine of hell should make us all the more sensitive to sin in our own lives. Staring hell briefly in the face should, however, cause us to fall at our feet of our gracious Savior and rejoice in his mercy and his love, right? <laughs> Again, look at verse 14 of 16. The parable, the, the, the clever steward, the parable that we just saw of the rich man of Lazarus is orbiting around people who should have known better. They had the law and the prophets. They claimed to be the disciples of Moses. They claimed Father Abraham. And what does the text tell us? These Pharisees loved money. So much so they heard all this and ridiculed him. You cannot serve God and anything this earth affords. God will not play second fiddle. So this morning, let me challenge you, as we celebrate Thanksgiving this week, spend some time reflecting not only what God has done in your life, but how are you being a conduit of the blessings he's lavished on you? Lord, we thank you for your word. This is difficult stuff to hear. 
It's, it's easy just to go with the flow. I think that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. We, we get accustomed to, I don't know, keeping up with the Joneses and things that are expected to buy at Christmas time, etc., etc. At this Thanksgiving season, may we just step back for a minute and say, yeah. First of all, all that we have stems from your hand. And secondly, how are, not only are we using those resources to love you better, but how are we using those to love others? We long for the day when we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. May we be like the wise steward. May we be like Lazarus who understands the meaning of his name. You, O oh God, are our help. Well, thank you and praise you in Jesus.